You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And we're smack dab in the middle of October, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy. And here we go with episode 50, and uh, I gotta say, I like the sound of that. It's a pretty nice milestone, and uh, this episode features another installment of Herb Science Sunday with Dr. Alex Crone. And I'm very excited about that, too, and I hope you are as well. But before we get to Alex and the episode... I want to take a minute to thank all of the show's patrons. I appreciate your support, and you've helped out tremendously in reaching the 50-show milestone. And uh, if you're out there listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks, you can do so via Patreon. You can just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle, and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal or Venmo. Just uh, drop an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And, uh, and Peter Berg, your timing is impeccable. Just as I started to record this intro, I got a notification of your generous one-time contribution. I just want to say thank you so much, my friend, and uh, I hope we can get together soon because I sure miss you. Okay, so I'm excited to put out another installment of Herp Science Sunday, uh, I have received a lot of feedback and comments about the first show Alex and I did, and so we are encouraged to continue. Plus, I just enjoy talking to Alex. His uh, enthusiasm is very contagious, and I love hearing his perspective on all things herpetological. And we will once again be talking about two different papers, uh, but you'll notice that the conversation also veers off in a very unexpected and totally cool tangent. And I will attempt to tie it all up in a neat and tidy package in the epilogue after our conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And it is another segment of Herp Science Sunday with Dr. Alex Crone. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks for having me again. Good to see your face. Um, Been a a couple months since we we chatted. Uh, We're back with another round of papers to pull apart, some interesting things to talk about. And uh, actually, you and I... uh, both went, were on vacation in Mexico recently, not at the same time, but pretty close, kind of overlapping a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a fun little coincidence. It was good. I went to Veracruz and you went to Oaxaca, correct? That's true, yeah. I, mine was not a full-fledged uh, herping trip. We went um, as, our, as a, a honeymoon for Allie and I got married last year, and this was the first time we were able to to sneak out and, and do our honeymoon, but I was still able to get a solid two or three days in of herping. Well, that's awesome. And it's awesome that you guys finally got to have a, a honeymoon because uh, you and all these other folks that got married or got engaged or had babies, all these crazy things going on last year was just a, a mess. And uh, so uh, congratulations to you both for finally getting your honeymoon in. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it was uh we were, we were glad to do it. And just in the nick of time, too, just before all the crazy Delta stuff uh, really started kicking up. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, it, my wife and I know we we just took a a four day vacation ourselves this past weekend, and uh, it felt kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> after it can. after quite a long time, it was a little car trip, but it was just uh, just felt kind of weird to get out uh, as a couple, you know. Oh yeah. And, uh, also a non herp related trip, but uh, yeah. So uh, it's good to talk to you again. We have a couple papers lined up and. You were uh, nice enough to send to me and uh, dig up and send to me. And uh, which which paper are you thinking about starting with? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, if we're on the topic of Mexico, uh, we could start with the Bromeliad paper. That one, yeah. You you went to Veracruz, and and this paper took place right in Veracruz. So why not get started there? Sounds good. And I uh, uh, I did see some bromeliads, and I did see some bromeliad occupants. Nice. Uh, including a few mentioned in this paper. So, Oh, very nice. Uh, yeah, I was looking and I saw some bromeliads for sure. Some like oaks that just look like every square inch was laden with bromeliads. Like a branch might break from the weight of all of them. Um, but alas, did not see any really cool bromeliad occupants, which I was hoping to. And that that was also secretly why I suggested we read this paper because um, it's a much cooler way, a uh, much more efficient way of looking in bromeliads than just poking your nose into the three or four that happen to be at eye level. Right. Okay. Well, let's, let's get into this. Um, the, the title of the paper is Bromeliad Sampling, a Passive Technique for Arboreal Amphibians Across Ecosystems in the Neotropics. And this is by uh, Jonathan Aguiar Cruz and some and uh, four other folks. Uh, this is published in Ichthyology and Herpetology, uh, issue uh, 109, volume one. This is a 2021 paper. And so uh, the paper opens by addressing the issue of trying to figure out what animals, number one, trying to do surveys for specific amphibians or amphibians is, is kind of difficult because they're they hide a lot and if, if they're not hiding in the ground they're hiding in the trees and they're hiding in the bromeliads and to sample for these amphibians uh, to, to dig them out of bromeliads is is kind of uh, a destructive task uh, it, you end up ruining the hat the, the little micro habitat that the animal is, is living in and before we really get into the details of the paper, uh, it's it's worth mentioning that there are lots of different types of bromeliads, and for this study and uh, and in general, I think we're referring to something called uh, or a type of bromeliad that's generally called a tank bromeliad, which is a bromeliad that has uh, overlapping leaves that allows it to catch water and hold water in in the base of the of the leaf system. Yeah, so this is a little different from like your Tillandsia, your your air plant type bromeliad. So that was exactly what I was going to bring up. That like if you've never heard of a bromeliad, but you've seen the videos of um, maybe poison dart frogs like laying their eggs in those uh, plants in South America, that's a bromeliad. Like if you look at um, uh, actually a pineapple, pineapple pineapples are the fruits of bromeliads and. The Spanish moth is another bromeliad, although that's not a tank bromeliad. So yeah, those are those are the kinds of plants that that we're talking about, and they have some crazy amphibians that live in them. Some 
salamanders no bigger than your fingernails spend their entire lives in one or a few bromeliads. And they can have little uh, mesocosms, little like mini ecosystems in a bromeliad. So it, it is, like you said, Mike, it's really important that we figure out a good non-destructive way to sample these bromeliads and see uh, what amphibians are living in them. Yeah, and uh, as as it comes up in every podcast episode, uh, Peru is uh, is uh, when I go to Peru and we're walking around the forest. Occasionally, we'll find bromeliads that have blown down from a tree. They're knocked down by a branch, or I don't know. There's a monkey barn dance, or who knows what's going on up there. But the bromeliads are on the ground, and we always look in in the leaves of the bromeliads because occasionally we'll find frogs. In fact, there's a uh, in a, a genus of frogs called uh, Osteocephalus. Uh, one of their common names is bromeliad frogs because they're kind of flat in profile and they spend, uh, well, oftentimes when I find these fallen bromeliads, I'll find an Osteocephalus species wedged in among one of the leaves. So, yeah, so this is this one kind of hits home for me. Um, I think the, the the thrust of the paper is how to sample bromeliads without actually destroying all of the bromeliads or some of the bromeliads. And to that end, they decided they needed to find out, you know, if, if they had an idea and they want to make sure it worked. They basically gathered or harvested 75 tank bromeliads. And uh, they have uh, five different forest areas that they sampled, which ranged from, you know, down near sea level and the mangrove areas on up into you know forested areas at, at some elevation so it had five sites with 15 bromeliads at each site so a total of 75 bromeliads can i can i like paint the picture here for, for yeah. people um this was along an elevational transect in veracruz and like mike said it went from sea level to if they didn't go to the top of this volcano but they went about halfway up this volcano gets up to 14 technically 13,900 feet tall. And this is in the tropics. So from mangroves all the way up to like alpine grasslands, um, you can not effectively walk, but like along this this, this transect uh, in Veracruz, that is, that's very impressive. And they stopped about at 2000 meters or so um, in, in cloud forest. But I thought that was a pretty, incredible transect to be able to do effectively along the one slope of, of a volcano, Cofre de Perote in, in Veracruz. I thought that was cool. That is cool. And it, it kind of smacks home because we climbed uh, several mountains that were very similar to that, up to around 12,000 feet. And uh, now I know what my real limit is. Uh, 12,000 feet is <laughs> about it for me. Uh, but uh yeah, so that that was uh, very interesting that they chose different uh, what, what they call five different forest associations. But uh, what they would harvest these bromeliads, they would take them off the tree, but they would put them all back on the tree using a special bracket. So they made these brackets that have like a ring shape, like an iron ring that the bromeliad would sit in. And that iron ring was then screwed to the tree with a big lag bolt. So if you, you know, think about, uh, if you can put, picture that in your mind, this ring sticking out from the side of the tree and screwed to the tree. Uh, and then the bromeliad sits down in the ring. Uh, and then they, when they need to sample it, they just lift it out of the ring, 
flush it with water and get all find out what kind of organisms are in there and do the, you know they weigh it i'm sure they weigh it and they measure water volume and all that uh, and then they're able to put the bromelia back and it's able to able to once again function as a not only just as a plant a living plant but as a you know a, a little microhabitat as well it continues that instead of being ripped off its tree taken down studied and then discarded because you know it's kind of hard to climb back up that tree and, and put it right back where you found it so at least in the study the idea was to test the idea of placing these these plants in sort of an artificial bracket but that still allows them to function as a microhabitat and so they could go back and then sample those plants over and over again without without destroying them and that that should be uh, emphasized that they did go back. They went back multiple times over the course of one year to sample the same bromeliads over and over and over again. And it was pretty cool, pretty cool to see. Like effectively, if you had a coverboard survey or a, um, a visual encounter survey along the same transect that you ran multiple times uh, per year, you could also set up a couple of these tank bromeliads on that same line and thus repeatedly sample the amphibian communities that live in those bromeliads. And I, I think um, as far as what they what they found and their survey results were pretty interesting. So you have 75 bromeliads and uh, all told as part of their survey work, they gathered uh, or found 34 individual amphibians that belong to eight species and six frog species and two salamander species, uh, and included in there and made a special note to to note that uh, that some of these species that they were finding were small and or rare species that are really difficult to find otherwise, and including the salamanders and and a couple of the frogs. So uh, I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Yeah, one one is listed as critically endangered by the IUCN and has not been seen since the 1980s, even though I did see a record on there that Sean Rubito found one last year. And uh, another had not been, or sorry, one of the frogs had not been seen since the 1990s. So I, that just goes to highlight that the things that live in these bromeliads are really hard to find. They're often rare, often secretive. We don't know much about them. They're, they're rarely seen. And so the more that we can learn about them, especially in non-destructive ways, the better. Yeah. And, and so I, I, again, this is one of those papers kind of similar to our Spadefoot paper where somebody is proving a technique for future use, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It'll work in Veracruz. It'll also work in Peru or Ecuador or anywhere with, uh, with bromeliads and things that live in bromeliads. Yeah, and that that was kind of my thought in in bringing it up was that if you are someone who goes down who who lives in Veracruz or who goes to Peru like uh, once a year, and if you have regular uh, transects or paths that you usually walk, it'd be cool to put up some of these uh, bromeliad sampling spots along those trails. Like just like if you if you own a bunch of property somewhere else, maybe in the United States, and um, have some nice paths, I would tell you to put down some boards to see what you would happen upon there. Um, 
I, I would say the same thing for these bromeliads. It, it's pretty easy to do, doesn't seem to hurt the majority of the bromeliads. The majority of the bromeliads lasted the duration of the study and, and, and were still alive and, and just as big. And it's a really cool way to see some potentially rare amphibians, especially, well, bromeliads only grow in the neotropics, but especially in the tropical areas of central, of Mexico, Central and Southern America. Well, one of the things I almost, and I, I love your, your, you're basically calling it the equivalent of a board line. Yeah, yeah. Tropical forest equivalent of a board line. But one of the things that I, I did neglect to mention is that when they attach these metal rings to trees, they did it at a, a convenient height, uh, right. one, one and a half meters, which is pretty convenient. Uh, so it's easy to get the plant down uh, instead of 20 feet up or 30 feet up when you're going to need a ladder or somebody skilled in climbing with ropes and things like that. So, so that makes it, e it, it, I guess it, it, it makes it easier, but also prove that even at a lower height, they're still getting results. It, they didn't have to go all the way up to the top of the tree, although they may actually do better at the, you know, uh, at a, at a higher elevation than the tree, but who knows? They, they put that in the discussion. And I, I found that actually just as interesting that people have, so the, the previous way of doing this was, I think it's called a single rope climb, essentially like you throw a rope over a really high branch up in the canopy, you ratchet yourself up all the way up there, sample everything you can, usually destructively, and then rappel all the way down the tree. And that's a ton of work. You can only cover one tree. There's all these downsides that, that we already mentioned. Um, but people have actually measured in various places, uh, some places in um, Central America, in Cuba, and in Mexico, where, uh, oh, actually, and there was another from the Atlantic Forest in Brazil, where in that, I guess you'd call it like an altitude survey, where along the tree diversity peaks. And they were finding that even though there's these trees that get 20 more or more meters high, you can usually find the greatest diversity around three to five meters. And, and I think in some places it was even like two meters. Yeah, yeah. So in Cuba, it was six meters. It was 3.2 in the Southern Atlantic forest. And um, in Guatemala, the highest concentration uh, was less than 3.8 meters above the ground. And so they were wondering what would happen if you just put it 1.5 meters, which is like just above the head of, well, not even, like at about head height for, for most humans. And, um, and yeah, they still found a ton of stuff. And I think you can argue that that's not bad, that just because these arboreal amphibians have access to the highest reaches of the canopies doesn't mean they always spend their time there. I thought, I thought that was a cool little side note that they mentioned in the, in the discussion. Well, it also made me think about a specific frog, one of my favorite frog, probably my favorite frog in the entire world, which is called the map tree frog, which is uh, Boana geographica. Great name. Yeah, and folks can uh, can Google that or go to my Flickr and look for Boana geographica and an amazing frog, big frog, hand-sized frog. And, you know, we find these, they would come down under the canopy at night. We would find them in ambush mode low, four or five feet off the ground, usually in trees and in bushes and shrubs. But uh, 
Oh, one particular year in Peru, Matt and I made a side trip up the Napo River, and we went to this, uh, what do they call those, uh, uh, a canopy walkway. And that w- it was an old uh, research station. It was now an eco-tourist lodge, and they had a canopy walkway. And uh, so we, we spent a couple of days there. We went up on the walkway during the day and at night, and we're 109 feet in the air on this canopy walkway one night. Wow. And I see this frog, this frog, Boana Geographica, at 109 feet. And it just hit me that this thing uses the entire canopy. It uses it from the top to the bottom. It's rarely on the ground, but it's very close to the ground. And so it just uses that entire three-dimensional space as its home. It's not found in the narrow band right over my head. It's, It's just the whole thing is in use. So uh, so that kind of made me think about that too. It's like, wow, you know, okay. So uh, e- even a even a lower place bromeliad is probably within that belt that most species will use. And I, you know, I'm sure there are salamanders that are you can find 30 or 50 or 100 feet up, but I can't imagine there's a different density at 10 feet or 20 feet. I imagine it's it's got to be a fairly general distribution. I could be wrong, but uh, I wonder that they're in um, the redwoods of California and even outside of the redwood forest. There are some Aeneides species that will climb way, way up into the tree, into the canopy, where usually canopy scientists will find them in like the crooks of these branches in the redwoods way, way up there. And so it's not just tropical salamanders that do this, temperate salamanders will also climb really high up into the tops of the the redwood trees as well. Also cool. Yes. I wish there were bromeliads that we could put out. Like (laughs) I just, I wanted to study climbing aneities for a long time, but that, that study will have to wait. Okay. Well, now you're in the uh, more in the range of the uh, land lover aneities, right? The ones that stick close to the ground. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Just maybe <laughs> on some like uh, sheer rock faces and that's it. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I don't know what else to say about this paper. I just thought it was a cool uh, way to test techniques. They, it's a proof of concept paper. There's no, but it could very easily have been a little bit more exciting. They could have found a new species. Absolutely. It was already plenty exciting that they found some seldom seen species which you know leads you know somebody's going to adopt this technique and 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 do uh, some amazing things with it i think and perhaps even some new species may come or if not new species at least you know new uh ecological you know behaviors things like that there there's a lot left to learn about bromeliad dwelling amphibians in central and south america um there, I would not be surprised if they turned up a new species, and they'll definitely learn learn a lot. Um, well, all right, we're a little bit um, under. We're not at like half an hour right yet, so I'll go into a Thorius rant really quickly. There are these salamanders that live almost exclusively in bromeliads in the genus Thorius that people posit are essentially the smallest a salamander can physically get. They are just a few millimeters, like maximum one centimeter in length. They live almost exclusively in bromeliads. And 
essentially they've gotten so small that um, I guess I should back up and just preface this by saying that salamanders are walking genome bags and so why or DNA bags like while we have about two gigabases of DNA in our genome uh, salamanders regularly have more than 16 20 even I think uh, mud puppies are at like 40 or 60 gigabases their genomes are just gigantic and they think that these thorious salamanders can't get any smaller because if they did the cells would not be able to move through their small uh, capillaries and carry the DNA that they contain to all the parts of their body. So uh, specifically the eye is, too, is, is at the minimum size that it can be to still process light because of the giant genomes that they have. And they're almost exclusively found in bromeliad. So yeah, if you spend any time in a place in the neotropics and, and go there regularly, set up some of these bromeliad board lines. They are a cool way to learn more about these understudied creatures. Well, I have to respond to this. You're, you threw down the gauntlet with Thorius. Do I have it. to respond because uh, uh, when I was in Veracruz, we saw one Thorius. Oh, man. Uh, That's awesome. And uh, I I wish I had known the fact that this thing had genes coming out of its ears, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, but it was tiny. I mean, it was just tiny. It felt like perhaps, what did you say, under a centimeter. Uh, yeah. Very, very tiny. Picture like a, a, a just morphed red back. Is what it reminded yeah. me of. And it's an adult. And so I took some photos of it. And of course, nobody's touching this thing. We're using oak leaves to kind of herd it around to gently because there's, you know, if you sneezed, you might kill the thing in a windstorm. <laughs> They're so small. And the fact that the, they are at the physical limit because fun probably functionality, but also just the ability for it to carry its genome around. Yeah. That's nuts, Alex. Yeah, I'll I'll send you the paper on it. It's it's from the 1980s by Dave Wake and and other folks at Berkeley, and it just blew my mind when I read it, and it made me it made these like tiny, sorry Dave, like dinky little salamanders go to the top of my want to see list. Like they are just they're they're crazy cool, and we should all try to learn as much as we can about them. I also have to say they were really hard to, to photograph. I don't doubt that either. It was just very difficult. And nobody, you know, none of us wanted to, to hurt the little thing. So we were very, very hands-off and uh, very careful with it. So delicate. But uh, now I'm even more amazed. And it's also amazed. I don't, understand, I don't know the etymology of the name Thorius. But if it's named after the uh, Norse god Thor, <laughs> I think that's interesting. But... Uh, I don't, I don't know it either, and I should look it up, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a hilarious irony, what would you call it, like a salamander irony that, they're, yeah. that they made. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I love, uh, we wandered it away, but uh, that was uh, very cool uh, to hear. I, I had no idea, and so I will never look at these things the same way again. Good. Mission accomplished. <laughs> uh, so I hope you get to see one someday. Me too. Okay. Um, 
that pretty much does that paper. I think it's very interesting. And um, uh, we have another paper to talk about. But before we talk about the paper, a couple things come to mind. This paper had five authors on it. And the one coming up, I think, has six. And uh, I read one today that had about 20 on it. Yeah, that's becoming more and more common. Yeah, it's a a paper that uh, uh, James Van Dyke uh, in Australia is uh, is uh, co-author on it. And uh, I just uh, actually putting out a, an episode with James Van Dyke uh, today, hopefully later today. But uh, it's very interesting to see all these names. And I wonder... You know, you look at you look at a, a paper with six names on it, and they don't appear to be alphabetical. So, what determines the order of names in, in a on a scientific paper? How does that work? So, this is a, a long and complicated discussion, depending on who you ask, and it's mostly so because outside of the brief bits that I'll mention, it it hasn't there hasn't been a standard for this, and it's been a way that a lot of injustices can kind of happen in science. But the the long and short of it is that generally the person who does the most work on the paper is usually the first author. And um, the person who generally does the second most amount of work is usually the second author. And just kind of by convention, everyone after that, often gets lumped into the et al. And they are, um, the order is less standard, the contributions kind of tend to vary until you get to the final author. The last author is usually the PI. They may have done a ton of work on the paper. They may have done very little on the paper, but they provided maybe the funding, the lab, they helped design the experiment. Um, yeah, they, they might have just given the paper to the first author and said, here's the idea, you go run with it. And they kind of provided all the, the backup and support. And by, by PI, you're referring to principal investigator. Right. Thank you. Yes. And so that is, um, yeah, usually the person whose name is on the grant or Maybe they're a professor, they would be the the head of their lab. Yeah, those are usually the, that's usually how it goes. First did the most work, second did the second amount of work, any variation in between there. And then the last one is kind of the PI, like the head honcho or um, for the paper. And, but I should preface that and say that the way that they determine authorship order is thankfully becoming more standardized. And so it's becoming more and more common for authors to explicitly list out what they all did. Like so-and-so did the analysis, so-and-so did the field work, so-and-so did the writing, and we all edited or and, and contributed funds or whatever. And, and I think that's good, that promotes transparency, and it makes it so that people aren't getting first or last author just based on seniority or based on um, uh, how loudly they talk in meetings, they actually get it based on the amount of work that they've done. So somebody could be doing um, not necessarily the main research thrust, but maybe they're running the computer simulation. Maybe they're writing the R program or something. And so they they have a, a contribution to make too. And so they need to be 
you know, listed on the paper, correct? Is that? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, if that, again, whether they get on there or not, unfortunately, depends on on a lot of things, like how much they speak up and say that they want to be on the paper, how how nice the PI is in, in letting every person onto the paper. But yeah, they a lot of people can just do kind of one or a couple tasks that are still integral to the success of the paper and just end up as, as one of those middle authors. Um, for example, there's a paper coming out that I'm on in the next issue, I think, of um, Ichs and Herps or Ichthyology and Herpetology. And all I did was really help with the field work and facilitate the meetings um, where this discovery was made. And, um, and I'll be an author just for that. That was a relatively small role as far as I'm concerned. Um, but the person in charge of this paper, the person, the kind of head author, I think he's probably the first author, um, is, is very inclusive in who he lets get authorship. And so I was granted, I'm, I'm going to be a middle author somewhere on that paper. Cool. Well, I, I have to tell you that I myself... Uh, listed as a middle author on my first paper this year. Nice. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's a paper uh, done by uh, Andrew Durso et al. And uh, it's it's about uh, identifying uh, venomous snakes. And it's about, uh, it's a, an exploratory paper that uh, digs into what the planet's total photographic images is of all venomous snakes. Cool. Uh, across, you know, every venomous snake. What is there a photo of everyone? How many photos? How many don't have photos at all? How many are available on the internet? That kind of thing. It's a very interesting uh, paper. It's sort of a preliminary paper to some other work that's being done. But uh, did I get on there and, and do a bunch of uh, research? No, but I, I'm affiliated with the Hurt Mapper Project. And the Hurt Mapper Project was part of that uh, of that project. And it's part of some other efforts that are being done in association with that paper. So uh, so Don Becker and Chris Smith and I got to be, uh, got our names on the paper as part of our efforts, uh, through the tool that we call HerpMapper. So, uh, Great. so I guess that's another example of, uh, I'm tooting my own horn here, but I'm excited about it, but it was my, uh, it's another example of an ancillary effort that, that, you know, that the paper kind of depends on. So, right. Yeah. And I would put that in the, in the realm of, uh, giving data essentially, for for the analyses and yeah that that is an important role that's cool yeah well let's talk i, I have another th something i want to talk about in regards to papers but before let's get to the second paper sure um okay. and let me pull up the name uh because i don't have it in front of me because it's big it's a doozy it's a doozy and this this paper is uh it is called Frequency modulation of rattlesnake acoustic display affects acoustic distance perception in humans. That's a mouthful. Ooh. And let's see, that's in the uh, that's in the journal Current Biology, and the uh, first author is Michael Forsthofer, and there's a few other authors listed on there as well. So let's talk about this paper. It has a big, long, kind of confusing name. And what what's your take on this paper? Um, this is a cool paper, and this was one that was when it came out, it was kind of making its rounds in the in the popular press because it it did some cool things. Essentially, the authors wanted to test and figure out 
why rattlesnakes modulated the frequency of their rattle, i.e. why does the rattle seem to change pitch to our ears? And so to test that, they had captive rattlesnakes, Crotalus atrox, Western diamondback rattlesnakes, that they exposed to various stimuli. And they moved a, and they wanted to test like, what causes the rattlesnake to change, to, to change the frequency with which it rattles. So they moved a human torso, not an actual one, but like a, a plasticine model of a human torso towards the rattlesnake at uh, various speeds. And they moved a, uh, a, a black disc. So kind of independent of shape or size, uh, a black disc towards the rattlesnake at various speeds to figure out whether it was the size of an object or the speed of an object that caused a rattlesnake to to modulate its sound. Do you want me to go more and, and just sure. do the whole survey or whole summary? Um, so, so let me let me just interject it. Go. It you you could uh, very easily just uh, do this study with uh, volunteers wearing chaps or something or the plastic human torso, which sounds that the word torso has all these connotations that kind of give me the creeps, but uh, especially <laughs> now we're in, uh, coming up on Halloween, but uh, <laughs> you you could easily do that, but you want to make sure that you're not bi biased with some familiar shape that a rattlesnake might be responding to. These, these rattlesnakes may be responding to uh, differently because uh, uh, they're in captivity, right? They're, they're a captive rattlesnake, so you can't, they, they may be doing something different when a torso or a human approaches them. So you have to come up with some neutral shape that also might make them rattle. Is that safe to say? Yeah, that's a good point. Yes. And, um, and, and that's why they, I, I bet that is one of the reasons they chose the, the black disc. I should also note that when I first read this paper, I thought that they were like they had a black disc maybe on a string or like a rail and they were moving that towards the rattlesnake. But actually, and um, you can check this out in their video abstract, which I recommend you all watch. They had the Aatrox sitting on a table and facing a projector screen. And they just projected the image of this black dot that got bigger at a certain speed to simulate the black dot actually coming towards uh, the rattlesnake. And so the rattlesnake perceives that the black dot is, is coming towards it, but actually it's really just the black dot getting bigger on the screen. And they found, so when just measuring, um, for example, the human torso coming towards the rattlesnake, they found that there was a distinct frequency shift that seemed to occur. The rattlesnakes would shift from this low frequency buzz and then once the, the object got within, um, I think it was four, well, sorry, once the, the, the object got within a certain distance, they then changed to this high frequency rattle. And so they were like, okay, that's weird. I wonder why they do that. Um, maybe it's because of how close the object gets, or maybe it's the speed at which the object comes towards them, or maybe it's the size of the thing. So like if a small thing comes towards them, they don't really care. But if a big thing comes towards them, they really care. And then they, they ratchet up the, the rattle. Um, and it turns out 
the biggest predictor was the speed at which something comes towards it. So if a um, object comes toward a rattlesnake very quickly, they will switch almost instantly to that high frequency rattle. But if it comes slowly, they'll wait until the last minute until they switch to that high frequency rattle. And so that was cool in and of itself, just to notice that like, okay, they definitely switch and the switching has to do with the speed at which you come, uh, with which an object approaches a rattlesnake. But they took it one step further and they tested the effect of this switch from low frequency to high frequency on humans, on how humans perceived rattlesnake rattles. And again, um, they could have taken humans like out into the field, maybe with a captive rattlesnake, like wearing chaps and they could have them like walk towards the rattlesnake, but no, they took the safe and I mean, technologically cool, but maybe kind of boring way. Um, and they set up this virtual reality environment where humans would put on virtual reality goggles and have speakers all around them that would project sounds of a rattlesnake. And um, they told the humans to, to, to note or mark when they were within, when they thought they were within one meter of the rattlesnake. And they, they dropped them into this virtual reality on automatic, um, like an automatic transect or like they were automatically walking towards the rattlesnake. And then they either gave them just low frequency the entire time, or when they got within 4.5 meters, they switched to the high frequency rattle. And sure enough, they found that humans consistently underestimated the distance that they were to a rattlesnake when the rattlesnake switched to that high frequency vibration or uh, rattle. And so to put that a different way, the human, when the rattlesnake switched to that high frequency rattle, the humans consistently thought that they were closer to the rattlesnake than they actually were. And that I think is the finding, that is why this study got so much traction in, in the popular press. It was as if the rattlesnakes were tricking humans to, by using physics essentially, and, and auditory principles that I know very little about, um, they were effectively tricking humans to think that they were closer to the rattlesnake than they actually were. So hopefully the humans would stay away. They would stop at maybe two meters away instead of one meter or instead of actually stepping on this rattlesnake. That I think was, uh, was the really cool part about this. So humans, and I'm going to get back to this in a minute, but humans and possibly other animals use the Doppler effect to gauge yeah. how close they are to something or how something, how close something is uh, to them, you know, and of course by, you know, the Doppler effect is that you know, like, you know, when a train passes you or a car passes really fast and it goes, and that's the, the pitch of it changes as it gets closer and then it changes again as it starts going further away. So, so the rattlesnakes are gaming uh, potential threats. I don't want to say humans because obviously the rattlesnake rattle was not evolved to, provide entertainment for humans it was you know it's more of an uh, don't tread on me type thing but uh that if that if i understand it right then the rattlesnakes have figured out that by short-circuiting the the perceived doppler shift in auditor on the in the sound it, without probably without the humans even knowing it they 
they're rapidly doing this readjustment of their perception of where the snake is. Exactly. And the scientists like measured this in real time. Like as soon as that high, as soon as the, the pitch changed, the frequency changed, the humans immediately thought that the rattlesnake was closer than it actually was. And, and yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's also, it's one of those things like we should, we should be careful with our language that there was not a rattlesnake who one day like got the idea like, oh, maybe if I rattle a little bit more, I will, uh, I will keep those pesky humans like two meters away or those pesky coyotes or whatever, two meters away instead of one meter away. Like, no, that's not how it happened. It, it, this was a small change over time and probably over time being able to trick trick potential predators to stay further away from you meant that you lived longer and that you made more babies and eventually it became kind of fixed in the population that um and they did they did do this over multiple individuals and found that multiple individual rattlesnakes still show this same frequency modulation um and and that's kind of how it got fixed rather than like a rattlesnake being like oh this is a good idea i'm going to teach my kids to do this too uh, no. Well, let me ask. I, I didn't see this part in it. The paper's not that big. It's only six pages, but it's it's very dense. Definitely. There's a lot of the data in there, but I don't recall if they used other speed is, is or is somebody else did any work on this. But is this modulation shift, this rattle shift, is this known from other species besides Atrox? I don't know. Um, they only measured Atrox. And I mean, yeah, I would like to know if this is a rattlesnake generality or if this is just happens to be with Aatrox or maybe it has something to do with size and like how likely they are to encounter predators. I, I, I don't know. And they did not uh, speculate either. Okay. Well, I also confess to have not, to not have noticed this. I have not consciously noticed this phase shift, this modulation shift. Uh, in the rattlesnakes that I have encountered, of course I, you know, I don't, I don't want to make them rattle anyway anymore. I mean, that's that's old business nowadays. But uh, <laughs> but I can tell you from now on, I will be listening for that for that shift. Me too. I <laughs> I will be the first to tell you that my hearing is terrible. Like I can, I I have trouble hearing like pygmy rattlesnakes and other small rattlesnake species even rattle anymore because like my hearing is just that bad. But I mean, I can definitely hear, you can hear that rattlesnakes can make different sounds with their rattles, like depending at, at how quickly they do it, like a very, like when they first see you and it, they just give you like that, right. like that's very slow, it seems lower and, and it does seem to get higher as, as they really get going. But I too, yeah, I haven't noticed that like when we get that close, it, it goes up a notch and Really, the difference that they were talking about, I think was like, what was it? Yeah, it was, it was 12 hertz to 70 hertz. And so it seems like a big shift, but I don't, I don't really know how perceptible that would be to, unless you were listening for it. I don't, I don't know. Hmm. Okay. I'm sure you're like me. You're just going to be thinking about this uh, for the next N number of rattlesnake encounters oh i will and <laughs> it'll be kind of dangerous too because i'll have to like move my backpack progressively closer and be like did i hear it was that it was that it was that it and no i won't <laughs> um i i too don't bother or don't like to 
to make rattles rattlesnakes rattle anymore. And so, yeah, part of me wonders, like maybe by the time you've got a camera up in their face and like, and, and you've coiled them into that typical rattlesnake position, like so many herpers do, maybe at, at that time, they're just going full speed at the high uh, frequency. And like, we miss the low frequency altogether. I, yeah. I don't know. They've already Dopplered up. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I also like the fact that they're, they're getting faked out with this, this circle that's growing in size, which is also some kind of a visual Doppler effect as well. So totally. everybody's gaming everybody in this study. Totally. Yeah. I, and I want to learn more about rattlesnake perceptions and whether they could get used to that or, um, yeah, just so many different questions about like how they see and what they perceive as the threat. I imagine, I told you this earlier, but I imagine the rattlesnakes as like the, um, being in the same boat as the very first people to see a motion picture. And there was like a train coming towards, uh, the audience in that, in one of the first motion pictures and everyone like got up and they were scared. They thought the train was coming straight towards them and they didn't realize it was a, a projection on the screen. I wonder if rattlesnakes could get used to it like that too. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, uh, you run enough, you run enough time in a lab and they're probably like, eh, I just don't care anymore. Yeah. I've seen this movie before. Yeah. Where's my rat? <laughs> Please dangle exactly. a rat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, there's a lot in this, like I said, there's a lot in this small paper. Uh, it was, it was a dense read, uh, for uh, me, Mr. Non-Scientist. It was, it was, a, it was stuff sledding. Is it is a dense read for me as a non-physicist as well? Okay, well, I feel I don't feel so bad. Uh, there was a lot of multidisciplinary language in there with acoustics and physics, and uh, it was it was hard to understand. But uh, much like the your your little exposition with Thorius a half an hour ago, I I'm, I'm suddenly uh, much more enlightened on on what's going on in this paper. So I. I'm glad. Yeah, it, it, it is a cool paper. And it, um, like a lot of the papers we read on here, it just gets your noodle scratching. And, or I, that's not really how that works. It gets your, your gears turning and maybe is also a noodle scratcher. What are too many metaphors in there? Um, <laughs> it is, it's a cool paper and, and it makes you think about, about rattlesnake perception, about the ways that that our ears can kind of play tricks on us in the field, and sometimes it can be to a rattlesnake's advantage. Well, I'm, I said I would go back to this, and I'm I, here. I am going back to this. This is not evolved. This this modulation shift was not evolved in response to humans, right? That we know, we don't think so. But uh, other predators or other threats, like getting stepped on by a large wood bison or something like that, which tells me uh, it works. So it also tells me that other organisms that might pose a threat to rattlesnake also rely on the Doppler shift to locate and assess the location of the rattlesnakes or other prey. There you go. It's not a human thing. It's not just a human. It, it's physics, baby. And everybody in the animal kingdom is using it. There you go. Yeah, that is a super cool realization as well. Like by studying rattlesnake suddenly you got some insight into effectively all the predators of rattlesnakes period yeah or 
even things that might just accidentally be a predator, like a like a wood bison that accidentally yeah. steps on it or or some mammoth, like who knows? Mammoth, yeah. Uh, yeah, this just got even cooler when we brought mammoths into the program here. <laughs> That's what mammoths do. They just make everything cool. <laughs> yeah, you get no argument with from me. So yeah, I'm glad you brought both these papers to my attention. Um, I didn't I didn't have anything ready, so I was I was happy that you had a couple really good ones to talk about. Happy happy to help. And yeah, if any listeners out there see hear of scientific papers that they want that they want us to crack wide open and and really dig into, or they think other people would find interesting, they should definitely send them our way. Um, you can reach yeah. out to me or to Mike. Either way, it would be, um, I'm happy to keep bringing them up, but if there are ones that come up by popular demand as well, it'd be fun to talk about too. Yeah. We'll talk about anything for, for food or, <laughs> beer, or beer or something. Uh, so I, I want to switch gears here. I have two more things that I want to uh, lay on you, brother. The first thing is when you brought these papers up, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to go to my uh, U of I library account because I still have a library account, even though I'm retired. And I'm going to go find those papers. And the, for some reason, I couldn't get into the library that day. So it's like, whoo, man, I can't get this paper. And then I realized that's just the most common thing that happens to anybody who is not associated with a, a university or uh, has access to some uh, one of these public, or that's the thing too. If, if you're not associated with a university and you have access to all of the journals, all of the journals are not available to you. It's not, you know, it's like, uh, not just, oh, I can't get that paper at, in that journal. It's, I can't get any paper, paper in any journal. Period. So it, yeah. yeah. And so it, it really hit home. It's like, oh man, this luxury that I've had for the past 30 years has suddenly been taken away from me by some complicated technical problem at the library and so the the next question is uh, uh, i think you had problems getting the paper too so yeah what did you do to get the paper papers um i don't know well you know what that's fine i think it is out there and people can find it so i'll tell you the first thing that i did i tried sci-hub um and so sci-hub is a, a somewhat controversial website that basically takes all of these papers that are behind a paywall and makes them available for free to download. And that's usually against um, copyright laws and, and the publication, what do you call it, like rules from the, the journal publishers. Um, but it is a dang good way to get usually publicly funded research out to the public. So I have, I have very little qualms about that. Um, but if you do, um, there are still other ways that you can get papers. If you find a paper that you're interested in, you can go to go to the paper, look at the authors, and there will be one author that is designated as what's called the corresponding author. And their email address is almost always listed on the paper right there. And as a scientist, I can tell you most scientists love to share their work. They love to talk about their work and they love when other people are reading their work. So if you just email them and it doesn't matter if you're some stranger from North Carolina and just say like, hi, I'm interested in your paper. Would you mind sending me a PDF? They will almost certainly send you a PDF 
and because it's really easy for them and they they are really happy to. So yeah, Mike and I, neither Mike nor I could find these papers today, or sorry, this week. And I just sent an email to both the authors and within, I don't know, like a day or three, we got the PDFs and that was great. That was, that yes. was awesome. And, and uh, uh, the uh, corresponding author is listed right on the top of the rattlesnake paper, uh, Boris, and I don't want to butcher Boris's last name, but uh, it, it's right there. And so it's, it's, it was very easy to do. Yep, exactly. And yeah, Boris, I think both of them were like, oh, yeah, send me the podcast when, when you guys are done. I'm interested to hear what you say. And Boris pointed out that he has a, uh, a video abstract, which I probably wouldn't have noticed unless he had uh, brought it to light. And it turns out, yeah, that was a really useful way to understand the paper uh, without having to read the gory uh, physics laden details of it. I'll make sure I put that in, in the show notes too. So people cool. can look at that. Yeah. Uh, and so the bigger issue, there is a big issue here and there's what we call a paywall. If you have to subscribe to the journals, uh, to get access to the journals, unless you have some sort of university account, but it's not just a paywall. It's a knowledge wall. Right. If you're just, a a guy like me who, uh, you know, I'm not a scientist, I don't play a scientist, but I'm interested in things that scientists do. I'm interested in publications and uh, I, I want to read some of them. And there's plenty of people out there like me and uh, there's a big uh, a barrier to get over because this information is is not readily available. And like you say, Sci-Hub is the, the go around and it's very controversial, but, uh, uh, but also the the idea that you can just get it from the author and that's a, a really good thing to do as well. So, and, you know, Absolutely. They, they, they want to hear from you. They, they, they're, it, I think it tickles people that no, it's, it's just not going to a journal. Of course, you should also mention too, that a lot of, a lot of publications you've got to pay to get your paper in that publication too. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty crazy system, but yeah, yeah, yeah you do. And I would also recommend, like, if you are interested in this and, and you you want to start reading these papers, learning what um, is literally at the cutting edge of research, um, there are some cool journals that are not that expensive to subscribe to. So, for example, to, like, download a nature or science paper for that one PDF, it can cost, like, $40 just for one PDF if you're just a regular Joe Schmo who doesn't have... Uh, uh, university access. Um, however, there are a lot of other like herp related and herp society journals like herp review, like ichthyology and herpetology that come out quarterly and that are much more accessible. So I don't subscribe to many journals, but I subscribe to herp review and that comes to my doorstep, uh, once a quarter. And I think it's like, I think it's less than a hundred bucks a year. Like it is, it's pretty reasonable for a really, really cool publication with literally cutting edge research. Um, and that you can, you can go online for free and just read their table of contents. And again, email the, the corresponding author if you want a PDF or support the society, support the, the science and the conservation that they do and, and subscribe to the journal. Yeah, very well said. And, and Herp Review has some great cover photos. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And they do, they do a lot of other stuff outside of just uh, like science 
uh, science articles, like they do distribution notes, natural history notes, book reviews, uh, art in herpetology, history in herpetology, and and plus they've got some killer photos. Yeah. 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 And our, our friend Bob Hansen was the longtime editor of Herp Review. He just uh, finally stepped down from that position. I think uh, Drew Davis is the new editor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good one to to if you're going to subscribe to anything, I think for me, that's that's the one. Uh, I agree. One. I like it. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, I, I love the way that uh, we get all excited <laughs> as we dig into these. It's kind of fun. Uh, just pulling out these cool elements. And I am going to walk around all week thinking about the tiny little Thorius, this little bag of genetic goo. Uh, yep. if, if you're photographing it and you sneeze, it's gone. I mean, it'll <laughs> just be gone. Um, I, I, I'm never going to look at that animal the same way again. Awesome. Yeah, I will. I'll send you the, the paper on that because it is, it is just mind blowing. Like, that you're at the physical limit because you are a literal walking DNA bag. So how many you said how how big was the gen, the uh, genome again? I don't know specifically for Thorius, but salamanders range in genome size from like 16 gigabases, and I think one of the Nectaris species, probably Nectaris maculosus, the um, mud puppy, maybe it's the axolotl. Um, one of those uh, ambistomids are, or I guess they're nectarids now. Oh yeah, yeah. One of the um, aquatic <laughs> salamanders has one of the has the largest known vertebrate genome at like forty or sixty gigabases. I'm gonna look this up, and we can put it in the show notes because right. it's it's just absurd. And so, like, to put that in perspective. We now regularly sequence human genomes and we're at like two gigabases and we do not have the technology yet to put together a complete salamander genome at 40 or 60 gigabases. Like our technology is just not good enough. Salamanders have outsmarted us in that way. We're too busy generating Bitcoin. Right. (laughs) If we could use all the Bitcoin computers to just sequence salamander genomes, uh, the world would be a better place. Yeah. Get your priorities in order, people, for crying out yeah. loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Alex, thanks again for uh, coming on the show. What? Anything going on in your life that we need to know about? Any big trips or any uh, anything new? Not, not too much. Um, may have some announcements for the next episode but uh but nothing nothing crazy as of yet nothing on the horizon i'm excited we're getting into hogtober as they say here so i'm excited for the herping season to to pick back up here for the fall all right well say hello to Allie for me and pet the dog for me will do same (laughs) to you and Nell. and yeah thanks for having me a pleasure as always all right thanks alex and we'll talk to you again soon all righty bye-bye Hey there, me again. Well, that was quite a conversation with Alex, and I'm just here at the end to tie up a few things. As we mentioned, if you don't have easy access to journals, you may be able to get papers via Sci-Hub. 
So see the show notes for a link to Sci-Hub's current location. And uh, you also might want to check out the Wikipedia entry for Sci-Hub to see what all the fuss is about. And uh, once again, you can also look for the corresponding author's email, which is usually visible with the paper's abstract, uh, which is usually the teaser portion that's dangled outside of the paywall. And also you can contact me and I will email you a PDF of any paper we discuss on this episode. And I will also include information in the show notes as per usual, uh, including the video that Alex mentioned during our discussion of the Rattlesnake Acoustics paper. Now, that video gives a great representation of how the acoustic experiments were run, and it's well worth watching. And I want to expand a little bit on our tangent about salamander genomes and the tiny salamanders in the genus Thorius. So first off, Alex and I want to give you some better numbers. Uh, the human genome consists of 3 billion base pairs, and a base pair is a fundamental unit of the double-stranded nucleic acids that form the building blocks of the DNA double helix. And uh, I don't want to go any further down that rabbit hole, so Google base pairs if you want to you know more. And anyway, 3 billion base pairs for us humans, but salamanders. Now, salamander genomes range anywhere from around 10 billion base pairs for the tiny thorius all the way up to Necturus Lewisi, the Gulf Coast water dog, which has 120 billion base pairs, folks. So salamanders have some of the largest genomes of any vertebrates on the planet. Now, as we mentioned on the show, Thorius are very tiny, and the smallest species known to date is Thorius panaculus, which tops out at around 15 millimeters in length. And as a whole, the Thorius genus are salamanders that have gotten smaller. They've miniaturized, uh, but their genomes haven't so much. Uh, for example, the species of Thorius that I encountered on my trip to Veracruz, which was Thorius troglodytes, has a genome of around 17 billion base pairs. And these large genomes pose a problem for organisms that are trying to get small because every cell has to hold the genome, right? Which means that all of the individual cells have to be larger which in turn affects the sizes of important things like uh, neurons and eyes. I mean, the eyes have to be of a certain size to function properly. Something has to give. Uh, so Thorius has some physical adaptations to make all of this work, uh, including changes to the size and shape of the brain and the position of the brain cavity within the skull and things like that. And as I was putting this together, I started wondering, well, how much, how much of your average thorius is made up of genome. I mean, what's the percentage? I mean, it has to be a, at least a significant chunk for a tiny vertebrate that sports somewhere between 10 and 20 million base pairs. So this is all very fascinating. And, and uh, for more on this, I recommend you take a look at, at uh, a paper that Alex mentioned uh, while we talked, uh, authored by the late David Wake, entitled Homoplasy, the Result of Natural Selection or Evidence of Design Limitations which was published in American Naturalist back in 1991. And specifically, see the session on miniaturization, which starts on page 560, which kind of blew my mind. And, of course, the whole paper is very interesting as well. But I will add uh, this, uh, this paper to the show notes. And, of course, you can drop me an email to get a copy. So I can't thank Alex enough for talking with me. Uh, I never know what rabbit hole we're going to fall into uh, but it's always fun, and uh, I learn stuff, and sometimes I get my little mind blown, uh, like by tiny salamanders that are dragging around these enormous genomes. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did, and 
Thanks for listening. That's it for episode 50. I want to thank Dr. Alex Crone for coming back on the show. I sure had a great time talking to you, Alex. So much fun. And thanks once again to Mr. Peter Berg for his one-time contribution. And uh, thank you as well to all of the show's patrons for your continued support. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details on that. And uh, don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can join the so much pingle Facebook group as well. Uh, to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at somuchpingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>